Uh, when I was in first grade, six years old, I didn't know how to tie my shoes. And uh, it, the school I went to, a small town, we would go home for lunch every day. One, one day at lunch break, my aunt taught me how to tie my shoes. So I went back, and when, this, when the uh, afternoon session started, I reached down and untied one of my shoes and put my hand up. And there was a boy beside my seat that anytime my shoe came untied, Jimmy, he would help tie it. I put my hand up and I said, Mrs. Smith, my shoe's untied. And she said, Jimmy, would you tie Van's shoe? And then I made my big reveal, <laughs> my big announcement. I said, I don't need him to tie my shoe. I can tie my own shoes now. And uh, bent over and tied my shoe. I, you know, I don't know what I was expecting. I, uh, I probably like the six-year-old version of The Sound of Music or Mamma Mia, where everyone breaks into song, and they're all so happy for me that I've, I've learned this. But um, I really wanted the teacher's praise. I wanted the whole classroom's approval. I wanted them all to know that I had made this stride, I made this step ahead. And for six-year-olds, that's kind of cute and, and funny and fun. But the older we get, the more serious an issue it becomes to ask ourselves, where am I looking for a nod of approval? You know, where am I, who am I looking to, to say, yeah, you know what, you're okay. You're headed on the right path, you're on the right track. Last week in the message on uh, fasting that Luke gave, and by the way, a real great message challenged me to re-engage with fasting. I hadn't fasted for a while. But um, the last thing Jesus said in that passage was, don't fast for the approval of others. He said, when you fast, do it in secret before God so that God sees and God who sees in secret will reward you. And so it's that issue of who are you looking to? You know, what, what direction is your focus in life? Is it here or is it on the Father, God the Father? And today's passage carries that theme on. And it's, it's such an important issue. It is such an important issue that Jesus said it even impacts our ability to believe him, to have faith in him. In John 5, Jesus said this. He's talking to the Pharisees. He said, how can you believe when you receive honor from one another and you do not seek the honor that comes from the only true God? See, they were arguing with Jesus. They didn't believe he was who he said he was. And he said, well, how can you believe? All you care about is what you think of each other. And so there's this potential for us to get locked into looking around to others for our affirmation and approval in life when really what we should be doing is looking to the Heavenly Father. And so that same principle carries through into today's message and this idea of my life focus, where am I looking? And Jesus applies that same principle to wealth and possessions. And am I looking to wealth and possessions in this world for my security, you know, for my blessing in life? Or am I looking to God the Father? And so we're gonna read this passage. There are three sections to it, three segments of it. The first one gives us the danger that, uh, that wealth provides, the, the presents to the believer in this world, in this lifetime. Second, the second segment uh, presents a pathway to either spiritual light or darkness relating to 
hour relating to finances. And then the third is the opportunity to be set free or to walk in greater freedom. So we're going to read the passage, Matthew 6, 19 to 24. Would you stand with me? Is the passage going to be on the screen? Is it? Oh, there it is. Okay, great. You can see at the end of each of these segments, there's one very clear statement that is in uh, parentheses. And so I'm going to ask you to read that one with me. I'll read everything up to that, okay? So starting at verse 19, Jesus said this. I'll cue you, all right? (laughs) Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in steal. Okay, everyone? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The, the, The eye of the lamp... The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Everyone again? So if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And again, all of us. You cannot serve God and wealth. Okay, have a seat, please. So the first section there, the first segment is the danger to our spiritual lives. He says, don't store up treasures on earth where moth, rust, and thieves break in and steal. Moth would refer to the treasure of clothing. In those days especially, having a big wardrobe and nice clothes was a sign of being wealthy, and moths eat clothes. So he's, he's, the point is, whatever treasures you set aside here have the potential to be destroyed and to be lost, and most certainly will be ultimately. But then he says, where rust destroys, and the word is very rarely translated rust. Really, it means eating away, and um, since there's no money that actually does rust, probably he's talking here about food stores, you know, having barns filled with grain. Jesus told another parable about a man who had barns filled with grain. And so that would be the food stores that you, that you might be relying on and think, well, you know, if bad times come, then I have enough food for six months or, or, or whatever it might be. And in those days, that was a sign of extreme wealth. And then where thieves break in and steal, that would refer to things that are of value, like items, like antiques and things like that, that wealthy people may have purchased in order to, you know, to keep and enjoy and to, to, to have a way to hold on to their wealth. But what Jesus is emphasizing here is that it's all temporary. In fact, in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs uh, 23, verses four and five, it says, don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Okay, don't wear yourself trying to get rich. Have enough sense to know when to quit. Okay, it's time to go home. All right, you've been working 12 hours today. I know you love the overtime, but it's time to go home. Have enough sense to know when to quit because in the blink of an eye, wealth will sprout wings and fly away. And so Jesus is trying to, trying to open our eyes to the truth that although everything we see around us tells us that the accumulation of wealth is the main goal in life and the thing that makes life better, and the thing that makes you secure in life, 
Jesus is saying the opposite of that. And so often in the kingdom, the, the kingdom teaches a principle that is opposite to what we see in the world because the world is controlled by the spirit of darkness. And there is no spiritual light to actually shine, to, to show the, the truth. Now, this saying and other statements of Jesus have been mistaken, taken out of context, and used uh, to lead to people taking things like vows of poverty, or just kind of like a mentality that poverty has, is virtuous. You know, being poor is a virtuous thing, and that actually being wealthy is kind of like non-virtuous. You know, might, might make that person a little bit questionable in the Christian's mind. But, but that, that's a misunderstanding of all of this. And the, the problem is with, with that type of thinking that poverty is good and wealth is bad, and that's not what Jesus is saying, but that type of thinking. Jesus himself in his ministry was supported by wealthy friends and some wealthy families that he knew that had an abundance of provision in their own life so they could send money to him to feed his troop as he, as he spent three years move, moving around Palestine preaching the kingdom. And another illustration, simply this, Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, and tax collectors in those days were all crooked. They, they all took advantage of other people, and they were all wealthy. When Zacchaeus came to Jesus, and Jesus had dinner with him, and Zacchaeus listens to him, and Zacchaeus is just overwhelmed with Jesus' presence, believes he's the Messiah, and Zacchaeus says, I'm gonna give half of my wealth to feed the poor. An amazing thing. Jesus actually said salvation has come to this house tonight. But he didn't say, I'm going to give all my wealth to feed the poor. Okay, half of his wealth he kept. And so having wealth itself is not a bad thing. The problem is, and what Jesus is getting at here, is when we make wealth the goal of life, when we, when we decide that it is the import, most important thing, that it is the thing that would give me security, you know, I'd be happy. You know, I'd be a very generous person if I just had more money, that type of thinking. Or I have to take the overtime. They're, they're paying us double for overtime right now. I have to take it, even though I'm going to be working 70 hours a week and I'm not going to see my wife and kids for a month. I have to do that. Why? Well, because money. And everybody understands money is the most important thing. You know, you know, whatever it might be, I have to take this other project on because when promotions are given, I want to be the one that's ready to get that next promotion, which would just heap more, more on me, more responsibility, and take more of my life and time away. There are so many subtle ways that we give in to this notion that money, that, that, that wealth is the main goal in life. What Jesus teaches and what the Bible teaches is that wealth is not a bad thing. It, it's treacherous. Jesus said that, that you know, the deceitfulness of riches in one of his parables, he used the, that wording, the deceitfulness of riches. Jesus also said, be on your guard against all sorts of greed. And so we have to be careful with it. We have to be aware and alert of the dangers of wealth. But wealth in and of itself is not a bad thing. It is setting your heart on wealth. And Jesus said that those that desire to get rich, and that word for desire is a Greek word that means to set your will on something. They, it's not just a fleeting thought, boy, it'd be nice to have more money. I mean, everybody thinks that. 
Okay, but it's, it's where, where I have set my goal, I've set my heart and my mind on money. And, and it's the thing that will make me, I believe, secure in life and more effective in life. And so it's um, seeking it. And in fact, Apostle Paul said that those that want, those that will, that set their will on wealth, they end up with all sorts of trouble in life. He said it leads to ruin and destruction. It's a snare, and they're going to be pierced through with many sorrows. And that piercing, that, that's a violent picture of like a sword piercing through a person's body. Sorrows piercing their life. And it's, it's, that, it's that desire for wealth. And so verse 20, he says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so he says there on the converse, he says, uh, build, build wealth in heaven rather than on this, on this earthly plane. And I've heard people say, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And a good friend of ours, Bill Jackson, used to say, you only get to keep what you give away. And this is, these, these are making reference to this whole idea that we can use our money in a way that will impact eternity. And Jesus said, use the money of this world to make friends who will be there in heaven waiting for you and to, to greet you and to welcome you into heaven. And they're going to say, you gave, I'm here because of you sacrificing and giving. So Jesus says, and relationships the most important thing. And so the, the essence of building wealth in heaven is relational. And, and it's, there's, it's, it's not like there are other, like other wealthy things we're, we're going to necessarily get there. I don't understand it all, and I don't want to propose that I do. But I do want to say this. There's nothing more important than relationships. And Jesus used that as an illustration to talk about using, you know, how we send our wealth on ahead. And that is to use it to advance God's kingdom. And so it goes on, and he comes to this, um, this dynamic statement at the end when he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And there are two facets to this. One is kind of like diagnostic almost. I've heard pastors say, if you show me your checkbook, I'll show you your value system. If you show me your checkbook, where are you spending your money, I'll show you where your heart is. And there's real truth to that. We can look at, you know, ask ourselves, where am I spending my money? What am I doing with my time? my energy, these are all the resources we have. Time, energy, money, gifts, talents, and skills. What am I doing with all of that? Where am I putting it? Am I investing it in eternity by helping, you know, putting it into, into things that will we'll see other Junos become joys? And that we'll see others that will, I'll get to, I'll get to cheer with in heaven one day and, and realize I was a part of them being here because of the way I arranged my life and the focus of my life was not on wealth on this plane, but wealth on that plane. And so it's, um, the, the other aspect of this is not diagnostic, but it, it teaches us how hearts work. And the way it works is this, whatever I put my heart into, if I make a decision and I put my heart into something, eventually my heart's going to attach to that thing. My heart is going to attach. I, I remember hearing once uh, someone from a culture that had um, arranged marriages. 
And this person said, he said, you know, in America, your, your marriages normally start out hot and oftentimes they end up cold. He said, in my culture, they normally start off cold because we didn't meet till the wedding day, but many of them end up hot. Because when you look at your spouse and you say, I am committing myself, I'm gonna love this person, then something happens in your heart and your heart attaches and you're giving your energy and your focus there. Now, I um, talked to a young guy once that had just, you know, he had, he had come back from military, serving overseas in the Middle East and came back and struggling in a lot of areas of his life and said that he was just felt kind of like dead emotionally. Just didn't, you know, didn't love his wife, didn't love his kids, didn't love anybody or care about anything. And he said this, he said he was driving down the street and he stopped at a stop sign. And in that moment, and this is how God works, one instant changes everything. In that moment, he thought to himself, wait a second, I want to love my wife. Not just I wish I did, but I want to love my wife. And he said something happened when he said that and made that determination. Something happened in his heart. You see, our heart follows oftentimes our decision. And then as, as he, he, he started to feel love for her, and as he, as he went with that love and started focusing love on her, his love grew and grew and grew. And just a wonderful, wonderful family and couple today. And, and, and so it's, it's not just diagnostic as to where is my heart by where my focus is, but it's also the truth that my heart follows my energy what I put my focus on. Does that make sense? I hope it does because it's a real key principle and a real key thing for us to, to understand. Now, the second thing is the pathway to either spiritual um, darkness or spiritual light. I'm gonna move through this quickly. And with no regrets, this has been a fantastic morning. But he says this, the eye of the body, the eye is the lamp of the body. Verse 22, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. He's using the illustration of a lamp. And picture a lamp, a lamp is a light in a box, okay? In order for that light to get out of the box, we put glass, pieces of glass in it. Those are the lenses that release the light into the room. So the light goes through the lenses where it's supposed to be then, where it's needed into the room. If the glass is all distorted and, 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 and bad, it doesn't, it doesn't send the light out well. If the glass is covered with soot, it doesn't send the light out well. And so then he takes that and he makes the illustration, the comparison to the physical eye. And my lens in my eye allows light to come in where it needs to be inside me so that I, my brain can decipher what's happening around me. But with my physical eyes, if I have cataracts, which I've had, you can't see, especially when there's light. It's, uh, everything blurs. If you have astigmatism, everything is out of, out of whack. It's just, it's, it's twisted or it's misshapen when you look at it because there's something wrong with your eye, you can't see right. If you have glaucoma, it just blacks out the center of the eye and eventually the whole thing. And so then the application of that is that he's not talking about physical eyes, he's talking about spiritual eyes. And he's saying if, there's, if my spiritual sight, and, and the Bible talks about having, 
uh, eyes of the spirit, you know, spiritual eyesight. If my spiritual eyesight is distorted, then I'm not gonna be able to see right. And I'm not gonna have light in me. And I'm gonna think I have light in me, but it's really darkness. And that's why he says, and how great is the darkness? That's what he concludes this with. But spiritually, if my eyesight's damaged, maybe through greed, through um, conceit, pride, look at what I've accomplished. If it's, if, it's, if it's damaged through jealousy or envy, bitterness, fear, self-protection, self-protection. That's one of the biggest things that will distort our eyesight so that we can't see right, so that we don't get the light we need to make the spiritual decisions that we need to make. The things that give me a clear eye are humility and contentment and mercy and compassion and being secure in God's love, knowing God's my provider. He's my provider because it's still talking, still in the context of finances here. And then he says, so if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What he's doing there is talking about self-deceit. It's kind of like, if I think I have light, but what I'm really getting is a distorted picture or a fuzzy picture or a picture that I just can't make out. But I think, oh, that's, I, I, I have light. But, but it's really darkness. In other words, I'm missing spiritual truth. I, I'm not able to discern revelation from God. Then he says, how great is that darkness? Because it's like doubly dark. Not only am I dark, but I think I have light. You get that? And when a person that really is in spiritual darkness thinks they have spiritual light, it's almost like a catch-22. I can't think of anything that can be worse than that spiritually. Jesus even said that to the Pharisees at, at one point when they, they, were, um, they were saying to him, you know, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And what Jesus comes back with in one of those contexts where they say that is the idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And so it's like, if, if I'm locked in to this double darkness, then the only way out of that is just a moment where I get a glimmer of light and I go with that. And I trust that. And I say, okay, God, if I'm deceived, and, and even, even this, just to say, if I'm deceived, show me. I wanna see it. And not, not just, well, if I'm deceived, show me, God, because I know I'm not. And, and I want to know how to show them that they are. But if I'm deceived, God, in some way, and I'm not talking about spiritual deception in the sense of Jesus isn't the Son of God or anything like that. It's just spiritual deception in the sense of uh, me daydreaming about money is okay. Me daydreaming about having a rich uncle I didn't know I had who died, and they finally found me, and they give me all this money. That That's okay. That God's okay with that. Th th that's the type of deceit we're talking about. The deceit that says I can't help a friend in need when I have the resources to do it, or I can't help that homeless person. He probably put himself in that position. He deserves to be there. And, you know, I mean, you talk about a lack of compassion and mercy Mercy is giving something, someone something they don't deserve. So even if that person does, even if they do put themselves in that role, in that spot, for the sake of my own heart, I'm gonna show mercy. But it's the deception that says, it's okay for me to work more and more hours because the pay's so great, or all my money's in investments, I'm sorry. 
Well, think ahead the next time. You know, don't put it all in investments. You know, have some of it reserved so you can do what the Bible says, which is to be generous and willing to share. Uh, different things like that we can be so deceived on. And deception is bad because it's deceptive. Uh, Lori went to college in Atlanta, Georgia, and we were down there once and went on Stone Mountain. And Stone Mountain, most of it, I don't know if there are any places where there's a sharp edge, but it's usually just a very gradual, gradual rounding of a stone uh, up very high, like hundreds of feet. And I've read that people would walk out and they would go and say, oh, I'm okay here. I know it's getting steeper, but I can take one more step and I can take one more step. And then they take one more step and they're gone. That's what, that's what spiritual deception's like. You know, I, I, it's okay, I'm gonna confess this later. Or it's okay, I know God understands. And, and we just keep going a step further, further, further until it's too late. Now, uh, the opportunity to be set free, verse 24, um, he ends up by, you can't serve two masters. You know, master, serving a master, that's a 24-7 job, okay? You can't, you can't have two 24-7 jobs, especially when, when they have such conflicting values. You're gonna get called upon by both of your bosses at some point in time, and you're gonna have to say, hey, I'm gonna help you, forget it. I'm breaking my word to you. I'll send you back the whatever. But you can't serve two masters. And that's, uh, that's something that, that is on the one hand challenging, but another, it calls for a response from us. And with this whole thing of wealth, he says you can't serve God and money. And I know some people say, well, mammon is a God. Th that's not true. Someone made that up like 100 years ago and people got onto that and it sounds like a great thing that mammon, that there was a God back in the Middle East, Near East at that time named mammon. There wasn't. It's just money. It's, now, there are demons that specialize in money, believe me. There are demons that might even, if, if you're casting a demon on someone, they might say their name is Mammon. But the idea that there was an actual God named Mammon in the Middle East is not true. And so just think of money. It's money. And it, it, you can't love God and money. And so that's the challenge. And the, the bottom line for this is, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He'll provide everything you need. He'll give you everything you need to fulfill your mission. But if I'm not on mission for him, then I, you know, I'm probably gonna get trapped into this whole money thing. But, but if, if, if I am really saying, God, I wanna serve you, God, yeah, I want to do well at my job. I'm going to work hard. And yeah, I want that promotion. But I'm not going to pursue money at the cost of my family or my health. I'm not going to do that. Or my ministry. I'm not going to pursue wealth at the cost of being part of advancing the kingdom of God in this world. So I work hard and I do that unto Jesus. You know, if, if I'm cleaning toilets, I'm, I'm cleaning toilets for Jesus. So I'm going to clean them the best anyone's ever cleaned toilets. If I'm a teacher, I'm going to love these kids and teach them the best way I possibly can because I want to do it for Jesus. 
You know, if, if I'm an executive, I'm going to lead my company. If I'm an entrepreneur, I'm going to run this company in a way that honors God because I'm doing it for Jesus. And, and all the people in my life I love, and I'm going to share the love of Jesus with them. And then that makes my life ministry. And he wants every one of us to view ourselves as having a life of ministry. And when we do, then it's just a simple thing. God's going to provide for me to complete my ministry, okay? He's going to give me enough food and clothing and shelter to complete my ministry. And when I really get that down rock solid in my thinking, then I, I enter into a new level of freedom, and freedom from the fear of the future, freedom from the fear of not having enough, freedom from the fear of thinking, oh man, I gotta, I gotta, gotta get more here or more there or somehow, and just freedom from the anxiety of, of, of the whole thing. So we're gonna stand right now. I'm gonna pray.